Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run courses and mentorship designed to help clinicians in private practice apply an evidence-based approach. So we've got some online courses and mentorship, both one-on-one and group, all on our website, tkex.org. Today, I'm excited to have on EP student Victor Dimov. Victor came up on my Instagram notifications about nine months or so ago, I'll say, after commenting on posts with some curious questions. And in a short span, I saw him create his own clinician account and start sharing his own content and even co-host his own podcast with friend and colleague Henry called the What's True Health podcast. So what drew me to connect with Victor was his genuine curiosity and drive to learn uh, the role modeling of critical thinking skills at uh, only 18 and 19 now, and his courage to share and be so actively involved in the online space as a student, um, where as a student myself, I was way too scared to even start posting or sharing content. So it's inspiring to see, and I'm really looking forward to hearing some of his experiences and his journey so far, how he's learned both within and outside of uni how he filters the overwhelming amount of info on social media and some of his top takeaways from our decoding science and research online course. So Victor, I always say this, like you're smarter than me already and it's a pleasure to have you. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be on the knowledge exchange. I've always been listening um, ever since the beginning and now I'm actually on it, which is crazy. It's a crazy thought. Full circle. Mm. So you would have heard the opening question a few times. What's your story? Yes, yes. So basically my background in health was like a lot of other people in sport, right? So I started my journey in parkour and calisthenics. And I was doing that for five years all throughout high school. So then I was always naturally active and wanted to get into that health space and i was really interested about injuries how do we prevent injuries how do we fix injuries and all i knew at the time was physiotherapy right all all my mates when they get injured like oh they'll have to go to the physio to get it fixed so that's kind of where i was at and i'm like okay i'm gonna have to do physio and then i realized it's very hard to get to physio it's like a 99 atar so that was kind of off the books but in a way I was still sort of trying I knew it wasn't attainable but I was still trying and then if I couldn't get it I'll figure it out um but yeah so that and when I got my marks I didn't get enough so then I quickly looked around what else is there sports science and exercise physiology so sports science was quite interesting but it didn't look to me that there was much employment opportunities at least that's what I heard and I did like the clinical setting of EP and it was more towards that physio clinical setting. So that was sort of the next best thing for me. And then that's where I am now. That's how I started. So I selfishly can um, give credits to your low score to have you as a EP student. I, I w- I'd be curious if as a, out of curiosity question that just popped up, if you were a physio student right now, so say you had, uh, 99.5 I think is the ATAR cutoff mm-hmm. to say you got that and you got a physio student first year under your belt do you feel like you'd be thinking differently to where you are now hard to tell I think I definitely have a sense of superiority I think because it's a hard it's hard to get into and it's You'd probably get a lot of prestige from that or family and friends, society, or your physio, you know, it's a really hard ATAR. And I feel like that would actually, if I didn't develop the skills that I have now through EP, I would, I feel like I would just be on that high horse and just, if someone told me what an EP was, I'd be like, oh, they're, they're just personal trainers, right? So yeah, that I think that's the difference. Yeah. So I don't think I would even be on the same journey now if I wasn't physio. Because it's just a whole other world. Yeah, it's, and I mean, no judgments at all. It's rightfully so. It's a bloody hard to get a 99.5 ATAR. I'd probably have a bit of an ego myself just to 
kind mm. of be proud of of achieving that it's um but it's it's fascinating also seeing now the double degree ep and physio uh, being more popular so it's not it's it'll be fascinating to watch the transition or, or changes over the next few years um we've been talking about on this podcast and there's plenty of others merging of the professions in like some kind of musculoskeletal pain therapist role so it'll be interesting to see um but You've worked on a, a lot of skills over this year. And I would say based on all the content and based on our discussions, a lot that you've done, you've made the effort to learn outside of uni, um, including taking an online course. So the decoding science and research course, if we start there, and I know that you already had a bit of an introduction into some of these concepts. So I'm genuinely curious myself what was new for you with the the course and what were your top top three take-homes mm. so my top three the first one would be that research can actually be misleading that was something that i was like frick um how how can we have all these papers and systematic reviews and they're not even reliable right because i i thought that as soon as you as soon as you go on Google Scholar, have a look and find a paper, it's, I understand that the methods might not be there, but at least they should be transparent in how they're saying their claims and what they're extrapolating from the study. So for example, the other day I was looking at icing, um, just searching to expand my knowledge. And I saw one article where if you read the abstract, you would have assumed one thing. But if you actually looked through the article and saw the results, or they said that there was like a meaningful change, right? But the change was like very small, right? So if I just read the abstract and I left it at that, I wouldn't get the full picture. So that tendency for papers to sort of exaggerate their claims to make it more appealing, I get where it's coming from, but it's not scientific at all. So that really surprised me, even though I did have a bit of experience with reading papers. Another thing was the logic part of the course where there was where we went, went into what the, what are good explanations, bad explanations, fallacies and stuff like that. And really taking apart the premise, like the argument, the premises and the conclusions that we draw from that, that to me was really helpful because not only does it apply to decoding research, but also decoding information in general if someone has a claim you can then pick that apart and then see if they're valid and sound arguments and now i've noticed that i've been able to do that myself um, especially on social media which we'll get we'll get to but yeah that was really it's quite simple but it's really effective in how you break down information so that was the second thing that was really stood out to me and the third thing was the philosophy of science component and it was really unexpected to me because when you when you hear decoding research decoding science and research you expect a lot of statistics a lot of like scrolling through research papers a bit boring right but actually the approach that you guys took with it was really interesting and made it more engaging with the casual chats that you had and the sort of establishing scientific thinking as opposed to just scrolling through papers, right? Because without without having that foundation in scientific thinking, you won't be able to scroll those papers meaningfully. So especially Karl Popper's ideas of um, conjecture and refutation, falsifiability, those, those are really just the fundamentals. And I feel like that really helped me. Now when I'm reading research, I've got way more confidence in you know extrapolating data and making conclusions. So those will be the three things for me. Yeah, the critical appraisal of research. I think we put research like on a high horse and forget that there's limitations and there can be publication bias and like p-hacking is possible. And, and so knowing that that exists can help us have a bit more skepticism when reading and digesting uh, evidence, especially just reading the abstract and looking at logic, how it can help not only reading research, but also what we see uh, on social media, on, on podcasts like this, so we can see oh, what, what's the actual claim. Um, is, it, 
is it a good argument or is it a bad argument? And just separating the argument from the, the person, like picking the argument and the claim apart. I think that's a skill that is relevant in so many different contexts, um, in particular with conversations or with the, the education and the knowledge that we see and come across. And then the philosophy of science is like the underlying base that you mentioned. It sounds like it made it more efficient for you mm. to read research because I can imagine if you're diving into a, a topic you you feel like you might need a PhD just to understand one component of it so I think the philosophy of science can help uh, understand the, the the base underneath the the research so you're like okay this is what kind of the, the purpose of science is towards being less wrong towards falsifying the the claim rather than trying to confirmation bias your way in um, what would you say for those who are like new to these kind of terms and buzzwords and um, what, what would be the, the practical benefit for them um, in particular with the logic and philosophy of science, what, what would they kind of um, find useful and practical you feel? I think it may seem hard at first to learn those concepts. So definitely Oh, like you could do YouTube, you could do Wikipedia and like proper searching, but I feel like the course, the the course that you guys offer is just it condenses everything really well. And you might as well um do the course and because you're gonna get so much more benefit out of it, in my opinion, than maybe going through less relevant results just on your own. But you can do it on your own. But the practical elements it's just it's endless because it just puts a it's like putting on new glasses right you can sort of break down every single claim that you see and seeing how it fits into the scientific framework you could say right and yeah you realize that you can't trust uh, a lot of resources that you thought you trusted and when you're reading research it's not yeah it, it just puts everything into perspective of how does this add to the scientific thinking and what do they mean by this? How can, what is it? What are they, how can they be more clear here? It's just, yeah, it's just breaking down each component and you, you'll, you'll have more confidence in understanding what they're actually trying to say. Yeah. That we talk about reductionism being, it can be misconstrued as bad at all times, but it's helpful to reduce claims into its parts so we can, figure it out. I think that it's common and normal and I still feel quite lost with a lot of research and the way that it's communicated and the kind of maybe the incongruence with, like you mentioned, the results and the abstract. So I think this framework helps us ask better questions to then properly understand and feel less lost, less kind of overwhelmed. And, and it's more clear as to what we can take from research and studies and the um, growing building evidence base and looking at the the body of literature because um, another thing that comes up is seeing a new study and then thinking it's the bee's knees and forgetting the decades of work that's already been done on a topic um, and mm. just thinking that this new rct comparing intervention a versus intervention b and oh my god intervention a is better that's like the common i guess grabby uh, headlines these days yeah. and I think hopefully the courses like these and, and learning philosophy of science um, can be helpful in, in disseminating that and translating that into um, ways that makes it clearer and then you can leave with a better understanding a growing understanding rather than just feeling more lost as to what's right what's wrong and one more thing I did so in my first year of uni we actually did sort of a evidence-based practice module sort of thing in one of the subjects right and that was super interesting to me I'm like oh finally we're going to learn how to read research how to do evidence-based practice well, for me it was really interesting at least I think a lot of other people found it interesting and what it was a, it was a thousand dollars mind you right because uni is expensive and for that money what did I get so we basically we didn't even go through a paper right it was more like statistics, p what's a p-value, what, what's an ANOVA, how do we make ANOVAs? One of the assignments was we had to use Excel to do ANOVAs. No one knew what they were doing. And 
yeah, it was more, it was really statistics based actually. And they, they sort of mentioned something about a filter of how you're trying to get the totality of the research, how to search on Google Scholar, but there wasn't, yeah, that's the thing that's sort of missing that foundation of logic before you even get to the research. You need to know what you're looking for, uh, how it's going to make sense in the paper. And yeah, that I felt like that part was missing. People say research, and then well, they might mean research papers, but there's actually this whole other world of philosophy of science and logic where I feel like you might need to establish that first before you move on to reading research papers more effectively. Yep, you could otherwise make some of my mistakes that I still kind of have to catch myself with, with using search terms and not knowing what I'm searching or using search terms and having a already a lens of I know what I want to see. And so not knowing my bias, I'm looking for something particular about, say, acceptance and commitment therapy. So I'm going to look for confirmation bias that says that ACT is amazing and useful and effective. And already that clouds my judgment. And I think that, so knowing logic, knowing the purpose of science can be a protective factor for that. So we can be like, okay, what, what are we searching for exactly? What do we expect to find? And how, how can we kind of test that theory? What would be effective ways of testing it? So then we can, um, yeah, better understand the what we do come across on our search results. Definitely, I agree. Looking at now your practical experience and more so like shadowing, observing, and also running a few sessions yourself um, with your observing of two EPs so far from my memory and also what you've seen across, um, I think you've come across a few others and other spaces, other contexts and other clinicians, both maybe online as well as in person from your experiences. What would be your top three learnings from seeing other practitioners in action? Mm. So one, the first one is there's no right way to practice. So obviously when you're starting out, you think that there's one one way to practice, one solution for everything, and that's sort of it. You just follow, I guess, what the guidelines say uh, or whatever. But it's I realize that it's because you're dealing with humans, it's, it's way more different than, for example, if you're building a bridge, right? If you're building a bridge, you need to do it properly. There's a certain way how to build a bridge. Otherwise, you risk collapsing the entire thing. But what I've realized is people practice with bad narratives, people practice unethically uh, and things like that, and they can still get results. So it just shows that there's not one way to practice and there's a lot more to it than that. And yeah, as I said, you're dealing with people who have their own biases and feelings and a brain and a nervous system. So well, it's it makes practice if I it makes finding the best way to practice much more difficult. But now I'm at least open to the fact that there's not one way to practice and everyone's different and ev everyone can get results. It just depends on how helpful the narratives that you believe in and are telling the other person how how helpful they are in sort of I guess navigating the world of uncertainty and and truth so that was that was one thing that was really interesting another thing was I, I never realized the whole business side of ep and allied health that was just completely over the radar people who do allied health they want to treat people right the last thing that comes to their mind is business and now i realize especially now I'm, as a pt I was applying for jobs and figuring out, figuring out how that works. It's all about rent, selling yourself, marketing. So we're not just health professionals, but we're also business people, which is, it's it's good to know that now in first year, but I can imagine coming up to your final year and being like, oh, I have to sell myself. I have to figure out all this these business terms. That could be really tough. Yeah, so that was a really big eye-opener, how it's, yeah, and business can actually sometimes be more important than 
than your practice because you could be in a situation where you're trying to feed your family and you're trying to run the business, but you have maybe a couple of clients. So then that comes, that brings up to the issues of, of sort of the, the dichotomy with, between healthcare and business and how sometimes those two things don't work well together. So that sort of thing was really eye-opening. And the third thing I would say is that how important communication skills are. So you can be the best at anatomy. You can be the best at biochemistry. You can know all the exercises. You can know everything on paper. But I realized that it's super important how you're talking to the client and how you could say one thing, but they might actually perceive it as another based on their previous experiences and sort of learning more about that and breaking that down is something that I want to go more into and how to communicate more effectively. And yeah, it just the, those things that you're not really aware of at the start came, came to light because I mean, when you're shadowing, you see what it's actually like and how maybe uni might've portrayed it in a different light. Yeah. The uni generally teaches the body as machine that like, there's something wrong with the body. So then you find what's wrong, the dysfunction, and then you treat that dysfunction or diagnosis and you have a result. So it's very like linear. Um, what I even had as a new grad in the first few years, I had like a kind of mental map spreadsheet of X diagnoses and then Y treatment. So every diagnosis had a particular set of exercises yeah. or every body part as well. And I think there's still value in that and just knowing exercise variations, loading, how to, put stress on different tissues um, and have some kind of framework to go off. Cause you don't really have any framework. Otherwise it can be like, okay, you're in the dark. Um, however, the, the assumption within that framework is that there's one way or there's one best practice for each diagnosis even. And then you find out in reality, I guess, um, that best practice is actually individual and the same diagnosis can look very different depending on the person and how they interpret their diagnosis and how their functional capacity is. So I think that's really a eye opening. I imagine as a, um, as of this podcast release second year student, I'm sure there's going to be maybe some conflicting messages with the, the way that, uh, we are generally taught how to treat particular diagnoses. Um, and yeah, the other two points, awareness of business skills for our own survival, <laughs> really important. And it's about the communication skills, how we are talking is what you said, not just what we say, because what we say can be misinterpreted in so many different ways. Definitely. Yeah. And if, if, uh, if I could go back and say just those three, three things to my younger self, I guess it would be really eye opening and it would really change the way I see the profession. If you're now talking to some students and they can be anywhere from first to fifth year, um, and they're looking to get into uh, diving into MSK, musculoskeletal practice and helping people with pain. From what you've seen so far, what would you say would be some advices? Or even, like you said, you can use hindsight bias if you could have a conversation with yourself about a year ago. Mm -hmm. So one thing I would say is engage with research as much as you can and as soon as you can, because... I was really putting off reading research because it was daunting and hard, but eventually if you want to be evidence-based and see what the literature has to say about a given topic, you're going to have to sit down and read for an hour. So learning those skills is just really important before you, before you go out there in the real world. I don't know, maybe there's people who unable to read research effectively and they graduated, uh, which is a bit worrying to me. But yeah, if you could do that, that's, that's that'd be really good because once you're out there, you have sort of a better way of managing your, your patient because then you see what the research has to say and then you can filter that down to the expectations and uh, joint decision-making. So things like that. So research, big one. And then second one I'd say is that realize that uni doesn't teach you a whole lot and what i mean by that is 
yes, there's there's value in anatomy, there's value in um, knowing the processes that happen in exercise prescription. Yes, that's super valuable. But I guess the expectation is that okay, you go through uni, you graduate, and you know you know how to practice, you know what to do. But that's not the reality. And I even talked to the head of EP, and she said that we only we only get train you up to where you won't be harming the client, right? So that's sort of the standard, I guess, it's just to be good enough. So that's that was another eye-opening uh, thing, really, because I thought that I'd be you'd be able to excel after uni, but it's actually just sort of the bare minimum of the of the profession. So yeah, so given that's the case, go beyond uni. So talk to other clinicians, try and get some shadowing positions, or even yet, yeah, even if you can't meet, meet up with them, social media, big, big um, sort of medium for communication and networking. So just those sort of things, getting something beyond uni, because uni won't be enough, is is another thing that I'd really emphasize. Yeah, so those would be the two things for me. Yeah, so looking at ways to start engaging with research. You don't have to wait until graduation. I think um, finding papers or topics that interest you and what's relevant to you, it's easier when it's actually interesting rather than boring. Um, and if uh, you'd like more kind of help with that, I think some podcasts are also ways to disseminate to, to hear some of the research disseminated. Um, nothing will compare the primary sources. It's just an easier way on travel time um, and finding out ways to even discuss research, I think is also helpful with, with colleagues or with clinicians. Um, and yet yeah, having the expectation, as you said, when, gradu when graduated, you probably still won't know a lot of things. It's more about um, uni keeps us um, with the what we need in order to treat patients safely. And I think that's important to know. And then the rest is up to us. So yeah, maybe even if you're in first, second, third year, not even final year, if you're starting to engage in research and reliable sources and social media is one of those mediums, you can get those uh, bite-sized digestible, um, simple uh, bits of knowledge and education. And you can get introduced to some of these really complex topics um, over time so then it can start to make sense for you um, and segueing onto social media what was your journey like we will start there um, and then why did you get into social media in, in the first place as mm. a kind of you know student looking at clinicians so I think it really started when maybe halfway through the first semester I'm like, okay, I'm just going to follow a bunch of EP accounts because that's my job and I want to sort of be more in that space. So literally Instagram, exercise physiology, Arbilla exercise physiology came up and some other people, right? So just follow, follow, follow. And then now my feed was more full of exercise physiology stuff, physio stuff. And yeah, that was sort of the main goal with it, just to sort of be more aware of the space and then what I sort of realized was that yeah these people are posting about um, how to practice how to um, about these helpful narratives what and sort of debunking myths that I thought were true and sort of getting me to critically uh, think and reflect and then so yeah, that that was sort of the reasoning behind it and then why I wanted to do make my own page was simply because I was really interested in research because yeah, the cons, I would really want to find out what's true, right? That's why we named our podcast. What's true health podcast, because I want to find out what, what is the most effective treatment X, Y, Z. I want to find out what the best way to practice and yeah, doing so required me to read research. And as a first year student, first semester, I had no idea. So the way I, if you see a lot of my, first post it's, it's about sort of breaking down reading research so things like what is a p-value what are risk ratios odds ratios and why i did that was because i thought for two reasons one it would be helpful to other people who might not know and also 
it was more about myself and being able to put it in a digestible format means I've actually learned it. So it was those, those two things. So yeah, helping people and making sure I've learned it because I can read and say, yeah, I've learned it, but to make a whole video explaining it to someone else, you know how they say that if you can teach, teach a topic to someone else, you've already learned it. So that was, that was the reason why I started. And then now it's more progressing into more of a sort of bridging the gap to the lay person and, and the research trying to make that sort of gap. Yeah. So that's where I'm at now. That's why I started social media and I highly recommend others doing it because you're combating the sea, sea of misinformation. You will learn a lot and you'll make connections like I did with Dan, uh, where you can really bounce ideas off each other and really learn more and accelerate your learning. And yeah, that's that's what I have to say about social media. It's really good. Yeah, it's helpful to be able to retain knowledge and, and uh, it's a memory retention technique to teach and be able to explain concepts in your own way, in your own words. I think it's really helpful um, for not only your audience, but also yourself kind of, and I, I do this myself. You mentioned you saw a few uh, clinicians debunk myths that you thought were true. So mm -hmm. I'm curious what your journey was like. What did you think was true? Like what was that, um, the, the context of those uh, beliefs for you? I'm imagining as your, during your time participating in parkour and then how did you transition from there, kind of the linear, um, more biomedical, biomechanical beliefs, which are so common and natural and normal in a lot of sports and then to now all your turning points mm. so yeah in the parkour world and in most sports in general there's that biomedical reductionist linear sort of way of thinking right and it was just normal for me back then but it really it really got worse when I wanted to sort of well in the parkour world there's this guy this I don't think he's even qualified. He, I think he's a sports scientist or something, something like that, right? And he makes YouTube videos where basically draws all these cool lines on parkour videos and he says, oh, this guy's not evenly dispersing his weight or his hips one degree back or something like that. And that's causing pain or it's not efficient movement. So things like that. And But he was really important in sort of motivating me into the health space because I'm like, oh, I want to do what this guy does. I want to be, I want to be a, like a biomechanics, biomechanist for a period of time, right? It was super interesting, like how I could draw those lines and come up with those conclusions. Yeah, but now I realize that it's not like that at all. But I guess it's it's unhelpful, but it's helpful because it sort of steered me in towards the health direction. But I guess, yeah, the turning points for that were sort of stumbling across uh, you and other people's pages and seeing that there's... Yeah, people were debunking these myths. I'm like, oh, like what's true? I don't know who to believe anymore. So it sort of made me question. And yeah, not just dismissing other people's what they say because it doesn't align with your beliefs and really saying, oh, where could maybe this is wrong? Maybe this is right. I have no idea. So yeah, that curiosity again. But yeah, the turning points for that were sort of yeah, developing that sort of philosopher mindset of questioning and what's true and acknowledging your biases so i just wrote a few key points like the turning points right so um the the client that i'm shadowing you with mike he gave me that book sophie's world and it's basically a history of philosophy book and that that sort of flicked a switch in my brain where i started thinking more deeply about things and acknowledging my own biases so that I highly recommend those sort of books where philosophy, history of philosophy, see what other people have to say about just the world. And then you can extrapolate that to your surroundings, right? So that the ability to think deeply was really important for me. Another thing I wrote was journaling because I've done that recently and it's helped me really put my thoughts on paper and seeing where it might not make sense logically or where I might need to do some extra research or clarify some things. 
So I highly recommend journaling starting out. I wish I did it sooner because you're articulating your thoughts and coming out with why. So you're sorting out your epistemology in a way. Why you know what you know. How do you know what you know? And then another thing was learning fallacies. That was, I think that was a really big turning point for me because certain people believe in like post hoc and stuff like that. It's just really common because people aren't exposed to it. But learning about all these fallacies, it's like, oh, I can see how I'm wrong now, how what I thought was true actually might not logically make sense. It's because it's a fallacy. Yeah, so things like appeal to nature, you can dismiss so many claims with that just that one fallacy because you see on social media or don't have seed oils or you need to try this organic stuff just yeah you could just filter out those like a large majority of claims with those fallacies and it helps you navigate better so that's another big thing and then lastly i put uh figuring out your ontology so ontology is like uh, how do you know like what is what is x so for example, the other day we were looking at, uh, we are talking about inflammation, right? And I don't know that much about inflammation, but I sort of assumed that I knew what it was. And then you asked me, what is inflammation? And then I realized that I didn't know, so that maybe I didn't know as much as I should know before diving into the research about what is inflammation. So going back to basics, what is this? What is this? And what are the fallacies and biases that may come up? And then sort of starting from there, I feel like, going back to the basics is really important because people often get caught up in the papers and the research and reading, but they don't address these fundamental concepts of how they view their world and why things might not be true for the reasons they seem. So I feel like that was really important in the journey from biomechanist to now, which I don't even know what I'd call myself now. It doesn't really matter. Critical thinking student, mm. future clinician, uh, it really helps. <laughs> it's a privilege to have a, a client that is also studying philosophy. So you can get some uh, philosophy through osmosis, but yeah, finding some introduction to a lot of these um, thinking frameworks is another way of saying it. Cause when I say philosophy, people it goes over their head. It's like, mm, that's a good one. Armchair yeah. kind of, uh, yeah. philosophy. Um, and I think it, the questions can feel I want to normalize this because I feel it like an attack. If you, if you're like, well, what's information and, and also the tone of voice matters. So if I go like, what's, what's information like as though you're an idiot, like as though you should know, or maybe if your mind's like my mind, my mind would also have that tone. Like, Oh, why don't I know this? Mm -hmm. I'm so dumb. Um, so like self-deprecating self-talk with the tone of voice. Um, but it's essentially, well, tell me more about what you know about inflammation so we can have a baseline because some people think inflammation is this, other people think it's this. And, it, you know, with that definition, one can be it's inherently good and helpful and a part of normal human processes. And others, it could be like it's you should always reduce it at all times. So if you have these two different definitions, you have two different starting points. But that takes a lot longer to ask than what is inflammation. So I think normalizing that it's it's common to maybe feel lost or feel dumb. Like what was your experience? That's, this is just my experience I'm just trauma dumping on you. But what, what, what was your experience when um, with my, the kind of questions that I ask or the kind of like philosophical, ontological, um, deeper questions, I imagine that it wasn't the most comfortable or it's like hard. It's like jarring kind of questions. Yeah. I, I definitely resonate with that when, when you said, you, you're sort of hitting yourself on the head, like smacking your head on the wall, like I'm so dumb, I don't know what I'm doing. But I feel like, yeah, the, the first few times it's, you sort of get into these existential crises of like, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's true. How do I figure out what's true? But I feel like they're really necessary in order to get some sort of improvement because you're yes, you have that dip, but then you come out of it higher than where you started. So while it may seem like a bad thing now and you're sort of confused and you don't know, you're just know that it's without that, you won't have the process of where to go next and figure out where to sort of resolve this crisis and find out what's true. But yeah, I can definitely, yeah, I still get it. 
like the other day I went for a walk without my phone and then I was like I had that feeling of oh where's my phone like I was like because so, I was I feel like and I realized oh maybe I'm addicted to my phone so like that I'm like oh no that's another existential crisis should I use my phone at all so things like that yeah you can see how in that example it's helpful because then I can sort of go back why is my phone helpful why is it not helpful and it's like sort of evaluate should I use my phone yes or no or like go the nuance when should I use my phone but yeah those are really while it's a bad feeling they're actually quite useful and I guess the earlier you can recognize that the better but it's definitely it's not nice to question yourself and be like what is this and like it might seem super simple but you're actually just going back to basics where, where whereas other people you might know all the way up up that tower but you're still on the, the ground so yeah I feel like it's going to be hard it still is hard for me but sort of acknowledging that it's a process and it's a step in the right direction is sort of the first step of making the most out of that situation yeah it can feel very counterproductive almost to unpack and go deeper on certain concepts i think that unpacking and going deeper will happen regardless because there'll be a roadblock eventually in this journey i'm just thinking with clinicians with with even researchers that there needs to be a, a base underneath the kind of initial questions and so having some kind of exposure to this in graded ways maybe not like you know who are you and what are you doing and what is the meaning of life that's a bit hard but know that okay what do i think is valid what do i think is true how do i know that this is true and then just having that reflective chat it's like a it's an exercise just like any physical exercise and once you kind of master that exercise like say it's a it's a doing squats for the first time with a barbell on your back Initially, it feels really unstable. It's like you're going to fall. It can be scary. Um, there's a lot of like feelings of anxiety as to what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to fall. I don't know where the, the ground is. So it's very new and foreign. And then as you keep practicing, you get better at the squats. So in a similar way, maybe starting with some kind of reflective practice of what do you mean? What, what do you mean by this term or what's the definition? And so that builds up your thinking strength to then be able to put more load on this metaphorical bar and then ask deeper questions as to what are you looking for? And um, how do you know that this piece of research or, or this claim is true? What is this claim? And, and then I think it's, it's helpful to have this process guided and have some reliable kind of um, teaching or reliable sources so you're not going in blind. I'd say that's probably something that's missing that uh, I even have people to bounce ideas off and um, it's helpful to have other um, perspectives to listen to where you're at. Journaling is another great way, as you mentioned. And so learning that this process is what we all go through. Um, and it's part of the process of growth. And growth is uncomfortable. Growth sucks. It's hard. Just like 100 kilo squats is not pleasant for many people. Maybe some, some genetic natural freaks out there. Maybe I'll say 200 kilo squats for them. Um, we are normalizing that this is in a similar way to exercise, I'd say, as a helpful analogy for those mm -hmm. starting out. You wouldn't load 100 kilos on a bar for a beginner. So you wouldn't go to what's the meaning of life <laughs> philosophy question as your first kind of question. Yeah, it's so true with the yeah, with the barbell analogy because yeah, you, when you start off, it's like, oh, philosophy, I need to think. And then your brain hurts. You get that feeling of your brain hurting. I've used all my mental capacity. But then the next day, you get slightly better, slightly better. And then you get to the point where like, I can just think all day. And yeah, it's a, it's a weird progressive overload for the brain. But yeah, it's a really good point that yeah we might have missed about having people to bounce ideas off of. Because going back to when I started reading research, I was just reading and I had no clue what to do. And if I came across a word I didn't know, I just I used Google. And if Google didn't work, I used ChatGPT. So not the most reliable, but it's still it's still okay. But now that I have you and Andrew and Emily to sort of bounce ideas off of, and people who actually are in the research space, they know what these words mean. They know how to decipher them and sort of convey them in a way which makes sense. 
it just makes the whole process a lot easier. So definitely find people who are in the space that you want to improve in and learn from them, bounce ideas off of them. And yeah, that that's yeah, that's another point that we might have missed. So I'm happy we sort of clarified that now. Yeah, and uh, Andrew Natoli and Emily Walker research to practice podcast for the listeners. Highly recommend that one. Yeah. But yeah, having people who you feel safe enough to ask questions with and the the one last thing on this point, I could go on a whole podcast on it, but I think to really hammer home that this idea that if you have experience, you know more and you're superior or this idea that if you have a degree or two degrees or a master's degree or a PhD, you're just inherently smarter and better than other inferior dumb students. I think that the kind of hierarchy kind of uh, assumption that we have, it it's two things. The people at this metaphorical top let's, of this chain, they make mistakes and they have the same, they fall for the same cognitive biases and fallacies as people on this quote unquote lower end of this scale. So I think it, putting people on a pedestal, like putting me on a pedestal, for instance, would not be helpful for the people on this pedestal, nor the people at the bottom of this quote unquote mm. pedestal. So I think the the idea of philosophy and questions and looking at the quality of the reasons and looking at the claims and the content and looking at the methods used to arrive at conclusions, like all these kind of questions, it's free flowing. It's a, it's along the whole kind of spectrum. You can ask this to children there's ways to involve children in epistemology like oh where do you think your toy is where have you looked oh that's interesting so it's not there where else could it be like you can still have these same questions just translated in their language so i i, I want to really um put emphasis that there is no hierarchy this is a social construct that we have with the way that academia is structured the way that a lot of um social systems are structured that, you know, if, if you're experienced, you automatically know more or you're more intelligent. That's bullshit. We can ask these questions. Um, and like, we should be able to question associate professors and professors should be able to question students just as much. And one more thing, two more things. Now you brought that up. Yeah. Ask questions in class and don't be, don't be afraid if something that contradicts your, your knowledge to go and ask them more about it other than just accepting it that yeah so be, do that and another thing was um i forgot what the other thing was that's if it comes I, later that's all good if it comes later, yeah. we're on this topic anyway so it might it might mm. circle back just interrupt whenever um a few more on this topic of in relation to social media and some things maybe that you wouldn't recommend some mm. mistakes or some ways of easily getting uh, sidetracked. And I've made way too many. So it's so, so common to get like a rage baited or to get really sucked into some kind of controversy because it's, it's like emotionally um, it's capturing. But the first thing that comes to my mind, what, what's been, what would you say you wouldn't recommend or some common mistakes within mm. social media? So I'd say, don't, it's kind of what I just said, but the opposite. Don't accept things just as they are. So if if you're in a lecture or if someone tells you, I don't know, X claim, and you're just like, oh, okay, they're, they're, they're a reliable source, right? Even if they are or aren't, that's irrelevant. And obviously you need to have filters, but you, I find, what I found in my pers personal experience is that Base without questioning and just accepting things, you're building a. I like to use this analogy: building a building from a shaky foundation, right? Unstable foundation. And then when you have that sort of assumption that this is true, you start building all this other knowledge based on that initial assumption. At one point, it's going to fall because you haven't addressed that instability at the base of the building. So there's no point of building all that knowledge if the underlying assumption isn't true or isn't well thought out. So I think an example might be helpful. I'm just think of like the listeners uh, to really hammer home this one and we'll call it a house. Let's mm -hmm. say icing and inflammation. Let's say the assumption 
a lecturer or Daniel Arbilla, Arbilla Excess Physiology says inflammation is bad and we need to reduce it. That's at the foundation. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we already have that inherent bias. Could you have an example of what you were talking about with that shaky yeah, foundation? So, okay. The, the shaky foundation would be inflammation is bad, right? You learn it in a lecture, whatever social media. And then the next step from that would be like, okay, how do we minimize inflammation? Okay. We have to do icing or the, What's it called? The there's ricer, there's NSAIDs. Ricer, yeah. What's the C in ricer? The C is compression. Compression, compression. Yeah, or we compress or we ice. And then you sort of go down this trail of all these alternatives and applications and how to implement it into sports and whatever. And what's the most effective duration? What's the most effective modality? Should we do ice baths or whatever? So you see how you can just that building just starts turning to a skyscraper with all that knowledge, but you, you haven't addressed the is inflammation bad because you just blindly accepted it. And if you went back and actually said, wait, why is inflammation bad? Oh, because I don't know, it's causing, I don't even know what the justification is for it, to be honest, but yeah, they say some reason and then you could say, Oh, that makes sense. Or that doesn't make sense. What questions could I ask further to clarify my understanding? And then once that foundation gets resolved and you sort of know where you are and how to reason it, you can build that building back up. And what I've noticed is if you don't, if you build that house on a bad foundation, it's going to come back to haunt you. It's just a question of when, right? So someone, someone is eventually going to come to you with an opposing view. And then you can either just disregard them and say, oh, they don't, they don't know right or you can actually say these are the reasons why i think this is how i've come to my own conclusion but you're not able to do that if you have an un unstable foundation because you haven't reasoned that out so you just go like oh inflammation is bad and another person's inflammation is actually good for you and then you just and then you have to say oh why do i think that and you're like oh i don't know this is what my friend told me or my lecturer told me i actually don't know yeah so it just all comes crumbling down yeah, so I think that's really useful for people listening to just understand that concept of epistemology and knowing what how you know and building your knowledge base of of reliable and critically uh, appraising the information that you encounter. Yeah, and if there was one like take home to to grab would be the what question, like what is inflammation, mm, and mm. this is common as well in another clinical example with pain when clinicians say it works and then you ask, what, what do you mean? And I say, it reduces pain. Then the question that's really annoying and, and I, I make the mistake of asking maybe too soon on online spaces, like what's pain? Mm -hmm. So what's your understanding of pain or what do you think pain is or what have you been taught about pain? And this is, and I, I think having a self-reflection of this is what I was taught about pain. Pain is bad. Is it, it's a, we should take it away. It's my role to reduce people's pain. People are paying me money as an EP, as a physio, as an osseo, as a chiro, as a clinician to help them reduce pain. And that's not necessarily wrong in itself, like a binary right, wrong, but there's more to unpack within that of looking at what's our definition, what's our understanding, what are we talking about with pain? And I think people can get confused if they don't ask that what question, the definition question. Um, lo looking at how do you know who to follow on social media? Mm -hmm. Where would you start? So this is something I really developed and you notice patterns in the way that people post and these silos, so you sort of notice they have their own way of conveying information. And these are just some patterns that I've observed over the few months. So basically these are the red, this is what I call my red flags for social media. So if someone's speaking in absolutes, right? So someone says, do this exercise to solve back pain, right? And no, no elaboration, no, they don't allow nuance at all. It's just, this will help. And, and yeah, that, it doesn't address the nuance of the human body and human experience and people as dynamic systems. So that's obviously a red flag. 
but then you also have to understand the context of social media. It's about getting likes. It's about co causing controversy or making it easy to understand to everyone. So you can understand where that comes from, but I think it's causing more harm than good. What else? So when I go through my filter and breaking down claims, right? So go through the video and then see and then follow their logic. Okay, I did, I don't know, I did this test for their knee and then, okay, no, I'll do a squat university example. So I tested their internal rotation and and therefore that caused their pain. So now we have to do these exercises to improve the internal rotation and now it's all fixed. And the log you realize the logic, there's a logic gap missing there. And just by reflecting on the video, you can see where maybe the limitations of that video come into play. So that's another thing I would say. And then there's certain terms about like quick fixes, stability, tightness, and body is machine narratives that you can quickly see online. And once again, those are things that get the most likes, the most views, the most follows. So it's hard. And yeah, and anatomical explanations. So I don't know, your your quad is too tight, causing your knee pain. And not realize, realizing there's way more to it than just the anatomical perspective. So that's another red flag. And then quick fixes. So yeah, like do top three exercises for knee pain, top three exercises for this. Do this and it'll be gone. Guaranteed, right? There's no, there's nothing else to it. The, yeah, that's another red flag. So just looking at it in that way and realizing those red flags is really important. That's how I personally filter my information through social media. Do you find it hard to, close-ended question, do you find it hard to unfollow pages that you've trusted for so long and that have helped you? Because I think we develop a very normal human parasocial trust relationship with someone who has been providing some advice. So let's say the, the advice of the internal rotation of the knee was really helpful and we did a corrective exercise and it actually quote unquote fixed or helped worked for us was it would it be hard to then unfollow Oof. should you even unfollow that's an assumption i'm making yeah i'm not sure about the unfollowing thing i'm still sort of debating it in my head because yes they're unhelpful narratives and you're supporting them and etc but then you're also seeing what the public is seeing and what other people might also be seeing so you sort of have that awareness so to whether whether to follow or unfollow unfollow is like a whole nother podcast and it's it's not an easy topic but yeah if, if i was going to unfollow i feel like it would be hard especially those bigger pages in yeah i don't know why that is even if you find it unhelpful it's just hard to press that button yeah there's some psychological aspect to it for sure yep just like a searching on a Facebook group. It's hard to search on a Facebook group. No one does it. It's just uncomfortable. I get you. Um, I think if you don't have experiences with hearing these narratives, it's nice to know them beforehand and prepare. I, I see that reason a lot and I don't exactly agree with it, but I see the validity of it. If you don't hear these um, kind of explanations in your day-to-day -day or you don't uh, yet work with certain population groups, or you can get a bit of an understanding beforehand if you're working with a bodybuilder or a powerlifter or a particular sport athlete and you see who the main most popular people are in that space so then you can understand where people are coming from with their narratives and beliefs mm. um you have time for the one more question Victor? yeah yeah, Mind yeah. Your time. um as an overarching theme building on this because i imagine you get and you mentioned it yourself you get contradicting information mm. um, and you mentioned like red flags maybe we can go i'm thinking green flags number mm -hmm. one and then how do you deal with the conflicting info like emotionally how do you manage the c c to me it's like why are people still saying these things or why why is it that this page is really popular and all my friends and colleagues like follow and believe and like swear by this person and even clinicians swear by these methods and these body as machine narratives why is it still the case? I, I guess that that's the um, how do you how do you manage cope with the contradicting info and then green flags? You can pick and choose one of those. So for the contradicting info, it's it's once again reinforcing 
know your epistemology, go back to basics. What is on what what is pain? What is stability? What is tightness? Because yeah, it's literally it's I think it goes back to how he talks about the house analogy with the found, uh, unstable foundation. The reason why you're getting an existential crisis or contradicting info. Okay, here's why I get contradicting info, because one claim doesn't agree with a claim that you've already established. But the reason why that's a problem is because you haven't sorted out why you believe in that claim in the first place. So if you've already sorted that out, and you know why you've come to that conclusion, you, you can just be like, you won't have that sort of fear, that existential fear you'll see that new claim and, be, and you'll be able to critically appraise it and maybe add on to your knowledge base or say that it's not relevant. So the reason why people get these feelings is because they haven't, well, I think, is because they haven't built that base of knowledge and really going back to the ontology, their epistemology. What is pain? What is stability? What is tightness? Why does it cause pain? Why does this? Why is this an issue? Why is this helpful? Yeah, because... It's it's just back to the house analogy because once you build that stable foundation, you can just grow and you won't have those. Feelings. It's hard though because we all come with preconceived ideas. How much of our world is just based on what other people have told us? Probably ninety percent, right? And imagine going through every single claim in in your whole life. It would you would die before you would figure anything out, right? So yes, you need to understand things but also I guess the things that are most important to you you need to be able to rationally explain how you came to your conclusions yeah but it's it's hard and it does take time it does take a lot of mental effort and reflection but if you feel like if you can sort that out there won't be uh, hopefully there won't be an issue with existential crises but you know you never know I find for me it comes up still every now and then but then a voice in my mind's like, oh, we've already been through this. Mm. So it's it's less, uh, I get less hooked by my, oh my God, I don't know anything story. Do you, notice this, do you notice this because of your, um, something more in, in the basic realm of your ontology and epistemology that was causing that existential crisis? Or do you think it was something else? I think I, I get it in situations where I come across information that's confusing or that I don't know enough about yet. Mm -hmm. So I don't yet have that solid base foundation. So I'm mm -hmm. going off, say, trust in the resource, in the um, the source of the information. Um, so it's more of if I don't have as much experience or understanding in a topic, I still very much get, like, my mind's like, I don't know enough, or like, oh, my God, what's, what's right? Mm -hmm. I get a, a bit of that kind of, you call it existential crisis response. Um, yeah. And then I guess I don't go deeper of like, oh, well, what is life? What is truth? I've kind of no, <laughs> gone no. through that and philosophers have yeah. gone through that. <laughs> um, and, and so I'm okay with not knowing a certain amount. Um, and I think that feeling to me is a signal that I can, uh, maybe I need to dedicate some time, some proper mm -hmm. time that this topic, this new topic that I've come across deserves. Yeah. And it's important it, it is a negative feeling. It's a bad feeling when that happens, right? But it's important to just detach yourself from the feeling and be like, okay, yeah, this feels bad, but what is it telling me? What's the what can I do? Maybe I need to sit sit down and think this through properly. So, it, yeah, just don't get absorbed in like, oh, I feel so bad. I, feel, I don't know, like getting lost in that rabbit hole. Sort of try and it's hard, but try and step away from that and be like, what can I do to? What is this feeling telling me? What what positive changes can come out of this? I feel like that's really important. So common to feel like shame or like, oh, I should know this, um, other uncomfortable uncertainty related feelings or just overwhelmed. And I think giving yourself a bit of kindness in that matter and in that scenario and compassion as hard as it is um, and being like, okay, this is a lot now. I need to maybe step away from my screen or maybe you need to dedicate time later or maybe this topic isn't really relevant to me at this stage. Um, so that feeling is like a protective feeling. I, I feel that a lot of us completely avoid and we, we just want to turn off from any thinking. I think that's, that's a long, it's short term. It's okay. But long term, I think it's a detriment to it's our growth. Yeah. 
yeah, and to our learning because we're going to feel uncertain in practice with patients who are in front of us. So I think um, this, I can see all these skills that you're developing and it's amazing to, to see your growth and journey and how this will, I'm sure I'm, I'm optimistic that, you know, I'll go straight to epistemology. I am 95% confident that you will be much better prepared than a lot of your colleagues. Thanks to all this effort that you're um, putting in to your thinking. Is there anything that I've missed that, you wanted to let the listeners know we'll wrap up and also get uh, where people can find you. No, I think we covered some really good things. I think the most valuable things were sort of those filters, those red flags of what to see online and building that base of logic and understanding your epistemology and ontology. Yeah. That those are sort of the big takeaways for me. And it, I feel like this podcast would be really useful for clinicians, students, anyone even if you're not in the health sphere just knowing those skills are really important just for life and um dissecting information yeah the ontology and epistemology if you told me that as a student i would have been like what the fuck are you talking about so mm. it's nice to uh hear the simplified versions and get an understanding of why it's important and how it's relevant as well so really appreciate you sharing some of your experiences and journey and keen to see where this journey takes you. And for the listeners who are keen to learn more about you, where yeah. can we find you? So Victor X Fizz on Instagram and the what's true health podcasts on all platforms, just search it up and yeah, that's where you'll find me. Amazing. Victor, thank you till the next one. Thank you.